0: Okay. Hopefully, we got all the technical mumbo jumbo out of the way. Um, thank you for bearing with us if you are tuning in online, and uh, hopefully, things are working now. Once again, it is July twenty fifth, two thousand twenty one. Welcome to our Shiki Fellowship Sunday service. For those of you here with us today physically, it's good to see people in the seats once again. Today, we are in the final chapter of the book of Judges as we complete. What has now been seven months of a journey into the book of Judges and so we began first week of January all the way till now the last week of July Uh, and fittingly we are now completing that book and then moving on starting next week into the book of first Corinthians so let's turn to that last chapter last week we read Judges 20 and obviously before that 19 And it is the conclusion, not only to the book, but the conclusion to the story of the Benjamites, right? And how we read of their sin and some of the things that happened, of course, um, um, in Gibeah. And we read of those detestable things before God. uh, Last week, Uh, for those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time, um, there was a striking of judgment against the tribe of Benjamin uh, for their sins as they were trying to cover for their brothers in Gibeah. And uh, there was just this division in the people of God as a result of that. And we saw once again the result of sin and what uh, sinfulness and depravity and evil does uh, to mankind and God's people even within the community of faith. So let's turn to this final chapter. It's 25 verses. I will read. You can follow in your Bible and uh, just follow along. This is what the Word of God reads. Judges 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that, no, so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? It came about the next day that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any, our daughters, any of our daughters in marriage? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who was lain with a man, who has lain with a man, and they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead four hundred young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the woman, whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead. Yet they were not enough for them. And the people were sorry for Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said, There must be inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters, for the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year at Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Labona. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us that we shall say to them, Give them to us voluntarily because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle. Nor did you give them to them else you would now be guilty. The sons of Benjamin did so and took wives according to their number from those who danced whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. The sons of Israel departed from there at that time. Every man to his tribe and family and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Amen. This is the word of God. Very peculiar ending to the story, perhaps not exactly what you had imagined would be the ending or conclusion. Today, we're praying for an unreached people group uh, from China. There are about 22,000 of these people. They are the northern Uzbeks of China and we are praying for their salvation. Only 22,000 of them. Uh, But of course, China is home to hundreds of different people groups and this is one of them small group, uh, mainly Muslim community so they're an Islamic community and they live um, sort of scattered throughout regions of China Uh, and they're completely unreached so we'd like to pray for these people today we're also praying for the world Uh, currently, I don't know if you're following along with this stuff it's really not that important I suppose on a very ultimate sort of level Uh, but the Olympics are going on in Tokyo and uh, the world is convening at least athletes are uh, in Japan and there's protests going on and there's a lot of concern because you know COVID's kind of rampant over there right now because I don't know if you know this but a lot of Asian countries are not vaccinated heavily uh, mainly Japan and Korea and etc um, but regardless of you know what your belief on those things are uh, we just want to pray for safety in the community and you know hopefully there's no spreading across the world because they are all going to go back home afterwards right uh, so let's pray for the health and safety of those athletes and the people and the people of japan and pray for the salvation of japan as well um so kind of duo prayer here for two unreached people groups japan and the northern uzbeks let's pray together as we go into the word of god heavenly father we thank you so much we thank you for the gift of your son jesus christ who died on the cross for our sins we are in remembrance of this today even in a text that seems so foreign and distant from that truth and that gospel. We look to this text and we see, Lord Father, the grace that you pour upon us. And so help us to see this, O oh Lord, today. We also pray for the Northern Uzbeks who need to know this truth of Christ. So you need to know the truth of their sin and the truth of a savior in Jesus. We pray, O oh Lord, um, that that message would be proclaimed to them powerfully, emphatically, faithfully, truthfully, and clearly that they would come to know you as savior and Lord. We also pray for uh, the Olympics that are happening right now in Tokyo Um, we could care less really about results or competition although it's in good spirit we pray Lord Father for the health and safety overall of the athletes as well as um, the citizens of Japan as they're very very concerned uh, about having a bunch of the international community essentially gathering in their country and so we like to pray for hopefully uh, what will be a safe and fun games um, and ultimately maybe uh, a sign of things to come uh, a return to normality and normalcy in, in today's world where we've been so uh, distant from that for about a year and a half. And so, Father, we just pray for that, uh, and we pray for churches in Japan uh, to be powerful, once again, proclaimers and heralds of the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for um, revival in that land in spirit. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, and this is the last one, of course, in the book of Judges. It is entitled, What a Savior. I don't know if you've ever been in this type of situation, but if you ever really screwed up big time where you had to kind of cover up for it by doing another bad thing, right? Maybe you lied about something and you cover the lie with another lie and another lie and another lie and you have to cover up all these things and it eventually just catches up to you, right? That's kind of what's going on today. The Israelites are trying to do a good thing, but each time they try to do a good thing, they actually do a terrible thing. And in that terrible thing, there's a goodness to it, like intention-wise but it's executed so poorly, and then the result is terrible. And then they try to cover up the terrible thing with another decision that they make that is in good spirit, but is also a terrible decision. And this just kind of snowballs on them. That's kind of what we're dealing with today. At last, we have arrived, brothers and sisters, church at the conclusion of our journey in the book of Judges. I hope it's been, I don't know what exciting, maybe not too exciting, but at least informative for you and inspiring. This final chapter is somewhat of an odd conclusion at first glance. The ending is certainly not, I guess at first glance, a positive read, right? And the wrap-up to this book doesn't feel, I don't think it feels particularly complete, right? Doesn't have like a nice sort of conclusive statement for us to hold on to at the end, or at least a conclusion to the story that we would like to see, right? A happily ever after, if you will. We would expect in a biblical book and a narrative to conclude with a victorious God, a triumphant end to His people, a restoration of faith and a celebration of worship to our God. But none of that can be found here. Instead, the final verse sums up best what we are to take away from the entirety of the book of Judges. In those days, it reads, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Our author gives no opinion or interjection with any theological advice in the whole chapter and yet, isn't it obvious what the lesson is? The lesson is so obvious and so powerful. Man is evil and their evil will be their end. God is good to preserve even one of those evil men, and it, let alone an entire remnant of faithful people. What we have in today's text is one final narrative, the conclusion of the Benjamite and Gibeite story and a final depiction of the effects of sin in both the community of God and the human race as a whole. Judges 17 to 21, remember I said that was the third and last section of the book of Judges, vividly demonstrates for us, as John MacArthur writes, how bizarre and deep sin can become when people throw off the authority of God as mediated through the king. This was the appropriate but tragic conclusion to a bleak period of Israelite history. Seven months ago, so beginning of the year, of this calendar year, in January, I told you the end of this book, not only the content, but the end would be apostasy, full-out unfaithfulness by the people of God, and that's where we're left with. I told you back then that's what would happen, and here we are. Three points to our sermon today, not even points, they're really just headers or categories for us to organize our thoughts. The first is we're going to look at the marriage oath that is taken. In today's text, the second, we're going to be looking at the war oath that is taken. And then finally, we're going to be looking at the human solution that these people come up with. And then we'll conclude with a final thought. The marriage oath. Well, we see it very, in the very beginning of this chapter, right? In verse 1, it reads, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us, meaning Israel, shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. That's the oath that's taken. It's really a non-marriage oath, right? This is the first of two oaths that the Israelites take in today's text. The oath is a simple one. It's found in verse 1 as we just read. No Israelite woman was permitted to take on a Benjamite man as her husband. This punishment was put in place to heavily diminish the population of the Benjamites. But the Israelites quickly realized that their oath that they conceived would lead to the complete demise of the entire tribe of Benjamin. This is because they had gone too far. In their previous rampage against Gibeah in chapter 20, it resulted in the death of most of the population of the tribe of Benjamin, especially their women. This was a short-sighted and emotional attack that went beyond God's command in, in terms of the war laws, as we find them in, for example, Joshua and Deuteronomy, to strike down Gibeah. The Israelites were not short-sighted in in their attack on Gibeah. They are now even more short-sighted in making such a foolish oath. So first of all, they shouldn't have struck down the women and children in Gibeah uh, and their battle against Benjamin in our previous chapter. And they struck down too many people. And then in today's chapter, they make this oath. We're not going to send our daughters. We're not going to give our daughters to Benjamin. And then they quickly realize in verse 2, wait a minute, if we do this, they do the math here and they bring in the mathematicians and they realize this tribe is gone in a generation. And then all of a sudden they're grieving. And here's the audacity of human, like the human mind and humanity as a whole. And you might think to yourself, this is so stupid. They make the oath, the ramifications are clearly something that they don't want, the consequence of their decision. And then they have the audacity. And this is what we do too, of course. In verse three, what do they cry out? They said, as a community, Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today? They blame God. The audacity to do this, it's peculiar and terribly short-sighted, isn't it? Here's one um, commentator who writes, The Israelites made an oath not to give their daughters to the 600 surviving Benjamites, but they realized that the latter would fade as a tribe unless they had wives since the Benjamite woman had died in the total sack of Gibeah. That's chapter 20, verse 37. Here's Guzik. He writes, Considering their anger against Benjamin, this probably seemed like the right thing to do. So they're like really heated and they're angry. And they're like, Benjamin, you need to suffer. They make this decision. And then he writes, But this foolish oath had unforeseen consequences. Justice not only brings punishment to evildoers, but also guards against punishment that is too harsh. Um, And that's a difference between justice enacted by the unrighteous upon the unrighteous. That's us enacting justice against other people. And then there's a difference between a righteous judge enacting righteous justice against the unrighteous. I hope that made sense. When we try to be the judge and we try to play God, we make foolish decisions like this. And when the consequences and ramifications become a reality and they're too much for us, We realize we've gone too far. We then try to make other decisions that justify or try to, I guess, fix that situation that we caused. And then we have the audacity, like in verse 3, to blame God for the mess we've made. It's a peculiar human condition. Jesus consistently quotes from Isaiah 6 9 10 they're blind. You're so blind. He goes as far to tell us that the blind are leading the blind. Then we have the second oath, the war oath. The second oath of Israel is made in response to the ramifications of the first, right? So once they realize this, once realizing that their commitment to not marrying the Benjamites would lead to the entire loss of the tribe of Benjamin, Israel begins to look for a solution. They turned to a law in the war laws and in battle, a war code, if you will, that total participation in a national war was necessary of every able man in Israel. So the issue at hand was, of course, a national one uh, when they were trying to punish the Benjamites for protecting Gibeah, right? And one tribe is found to have, or one specific uh, city or town or community within Israel is found to have not sent any able men to fight even though they had them that was Jabesh Gilead and they they were found to have broken this war code so they're like oh we found it this is it this is the thing that's gonna solve this mess we created right I love how there's no inquiry of God last week I talked about how beautiful it was to finally see Israel inquiring of God none of that here they just start making decisions on their own so Jabesh Gilead is found to have broken this war code none of you guys came Okay, Israel, go strike them down. Oh my goodness, you've already struck down Benjamin and Gibeah, and you've result, is resulted in all this mess. Now you're striking down another community. So they go and they strike them down. Women, children, whatever. They take the women as their sort of what would have been called like the war loot, um, and they take that, and they take those women, and they decide these women will populate the Benjamin tribe again, <laughs> right? So they find this loophole in the war laws. They find this tribe that has broken this war law and they're using that to manipulate the situation to fix the problem that they themselves have caused by making the initial oath, right? So they're clearly scraping here for any way out of this self-created mess. They punish Jabesh Gilead by striking them down and taking their women for the Benjamites since they wouldn't be giving their own daughters because that would be Against the initial oath, which is obviously like worth breaking at this point, but whatever, they're gonna keep it because they're honorable men, so to speak. And they're like, here's this other way we can do this. We don't have to break the oath, and we can make this other oath, right? And so he take these women, and they're like, we're not giving them to the Benjamites. We're taking them as a prize in war, in battle, because these guys broke the law. So they were spoils for the Benjamites. They're not being given to them. No inquiry of God and a misuse of the war laws meant to be applied and if you read the context of Joshua and Deuteronomy in those war laws it's specific to the conquering of Canaan the promised land and it's a specific application and this is a misuse of that application towards uh, those war uh, battles that Israel had to go to or go into against the Canaanites in the promised land was specific to that situation and the Israelites are manipulating it the Israelites are panicking here they're making things only worse, right? Kuzik writes this, Here again, Israel did something that seemed right at the time, but was actually a horror. They decided to slaughter a whole city of Israel, a city that refused to join with Israel in the fight against Benjamin. MacArthur again writes, Israelites placed such a premium on the unity of their tribes that they saw the city's non-cooperation in battle as worthy of widespread death. The passage does not give God's approval to this destruction of men, women, and children. It is another of the bizarre actions of men when they do what is right in their own eyes. Which is the point that both begins and ends this final dark section of Judges. And then finally, another commentator, this was doing one bad thing to make up for another. Israel instead should have repented of their foolish oath made at Mizpah in verse 1, and they should have agreed to give their daughters as wives to the men of the tribe of Benjamin, renouncing this foolish vow that they've created. So we have two oaths. One, the latter, to cover the first. And they're both stupid. And not only are they both stupid, they're ungodly. They're misuse of laws that God had given them for specific situation and context and for very specific application. And they're totally making the situation worse. So they do this. But then the mathematicians come in again. And they're like, according to my calculations, not enough. Not enough women. This is not enough to populate the tribe of Benjamin. We're still short. So they start scraping again. And here's this final solution that they come to. And it's a brilliant one, quote unquote the brilliance of the Israelites strikes again in this final decision that they make. By the way, I'm being totally sarcastic. It's completely idiotic. They have a final aha moment where the light bulb goes off. And unfortunately, their latest and last idea is probably the worst. (laughs) Okay, Having realized that there weren't enough women in Jabesh Gilead, they devise a plan to have the Benjamites steal the daughters of Shiloh and thus They would be keeping their oath of not giving, right? Technically, we're not giving you our daughters, right? Benjamin's stealing them. (laughs) So they tell Benjamin who they screwed by their own oath. Hey, we'll help you. Go to Shiloh. They have this like annual festival celebrating God or something like that. You know, their daughters, they come out, they dance and likely indicating some kind of drunkenness as well, go out, pick your wife, take them home, back to Benjamin. That way, even if those fathers and brothers of those women complain to us, we can say, well, I mean, technically you didn't break the oath because you didn't give your women, your daughters to them, and Benjamin stole them. So everyone's happy. Except for those fathers and brothers, of course, right? Probably those daughters as well. What the heck? This is the solution? I... I can't imagine... If I were God, I'm not. There's no way, I'm not even close, but... If I were even, like... If I was somehow able to perceive the situation in hindsight, in the moment that it was happening... All I... The only thing I could think of doing in in a situation like this is just sigh. And just be like... Really? Honestly, this is your solution? I don't think there's anything left to say. Is there a need to say anything? This is just stupid, isn't it? Now you're reading this and you're telling me and you're probably thinking to yourself, yeah, this is pretty stupid, Max. I can't believe they're doing this. This is ridiculous. Here's the unfortunate reality and it might, may or may not be true in your life. I think it's absolutely true in my life my week-long reflection on this text and a week-long reflection on my own life, I began to wonder, does my life look like this? Do the events of my life, the choices I make, the decisions I take on, the things I choose to do, things I choose to say, remind me of the stupidity of this text? I don't mean the text is stupid, but the people in this story, right? Am I so different from Israel in here? That's a very important question to ponder. Because we might read this and we could think to ourselves, we're better than this and there's no way we would act like this. We might not make the exact same decisions and choices they made. But you could understand the heart behind what they're doing, the thought process behind what they're doing, right? And I don't know if my thought process and my heart is too distant from what we see here. They answer the problem of wives for the remaining Benjamites by creating a little drama, right? They create this little drama where the Benjamites were allowed to kidnap women so that the marriages could be arranged without official approval. I'm just going to read through commentaries. All four of them that I read. Number one, rather than go through this charade, they should have simply confessed their sin of making a foolish oath and done the right thing instead of trying to make two wrongs equal a right. MacArthur, having recognized that the 200 others needed wives, they decided to allow them to snatch brides on their own at a dance in Shiloh, not believing that this violated their oath of not directly giving their daughters. Morgan, it's important to read this appendix to the book of Judges and especially the closing part of it without being impressed with how sad the condition of any people who act without some definitely fixed principle. Here's food for thought. Here's what he writes. Passion moves to purpose only as it is governed by principle. And finally, Davis, I think therefore, this is brilliant, listen, that the writer wants us to see Judges 21 as the ambiguous situation it is. There is a certain rightness and a certain wrongness about what Israel does here. They justifiably requite Jabesh Gilead with unjustifiable severity. They stand consistently upon their wife oath, but trample happily upon the rights of the Shiloh girls and their families. This is a mix of consistency and confusion. It is all correct, and yet very mistaken, and that is sort of the dilemma of today's text. And I would argue, in Romans seven, we see this in Paul's own in his own inner confusion and his sort of testimony of that. And I think it's consistent within us as well, as a truth and as a reality, that there is a complexity of confusion within us, that the Christian moral and principle collides with our own fleshly desire, and when that happens, we act like this. And you might think to yourself, no, I'm not this bad, but we behave like this. I've explained this to you before. The Christian is too eager to do the minimum. The Christian is too eager to simply obey a law to the point of where I can get into heaven. We don't expect to exceed. That's like a student trying to aim for 50 every single time. Instead of hoping to achieve the best possible outcome, we search always to do just enough. And here we see these people with a certain rightness to their decision We want to keep this oath. We want to punish these people for their sins and their crimes. We want to make sure this this thing is done and these principles are upheld and these values in our culture and society exist. And yet, we will throw those things away to justify ourselves, to make sense of situations and to navigate the complexities that unfortunately permeate in our lives and exist so readily. I hope this is making sense to you. I'll put it really simply. I think as believers and as community of God, we behave in this way today. And the final verse is really the ultimate summary of not only the condition of Israel at this time, but our own today, isn't it? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Brothers and sisters, can I beg to you this day can I urge you eagerly, not just as some pastor or some person with some kind of authority in this community. I speak to you just simply as a peer and as a brother in Christ. Don't do what is right in your own eye, but do what is right in God's eyes. Always. Here's a neat summary of what we've just read. Comes from a commentary on the book of Judges and it reads So the book of Judges ends with a miracle. How, after chapters 19 to 21, indeed after chapter 1 to 21, can you account for the fact that there is still an Israel? How can you account for this? All this terrible stuff, why is there still an Israel? It can only be, he writes, because Yahweh, God, wished to dwell in the midst of His people, in spite of its sin. It can only be because Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than His people's depravity and it insists on still holding them fast even in their sinfulness and their stupidity. Brothers and sisters, Israel continued to exist back then and the church continues to exist this day because God chooses to continue to dwell in his people in spite of their sin this is grace that's why I'm urging you and I was praying for you this whole week and at the beginning of this entire service that you would see the grace of God in this text I don't know how many people read Judges 21 and go oh the grace of God let me help you see it and this is our conclusion for today Israel's grieving over the loss of Benjamin is certainly warranted, isn't it? It's one of the 12 tribes. Even though it was the result of their own doing and their own stupidity, but to only see, as the human you are and as the human that they were, to only see the loss on the human side, to only see the human loss in this text, is a complete failure to see God's preservation of the other 11 tribes. Especially considering this, that they were all 12 of them, all 12 tribes, the entire nation of Israel was at fault and under guilt before God for their sins. It wasn't just Benjamin that was sinful. We read Judges 1-21. The entire nation failed. To only see then in our lives, let me put it personally in the first person, in your life, to only see the things God doesn't give you, that the things that God doesn't permit, the things that God takes away, that He relents in your life, is a failure. It's a failure to see the provision, the preservation of all things in your life. It is a major failure to see God's goodness and grace in preserving you. It is a failure in reading the book of Judges, in today's text, and in understanding your life under His grace and mercies. And if we fail in this perspective, then unfortunately, we are like that of Israel in this chapter. An Israel or people of God or church that continues to seek self rather than seek God. We will make decisions that thus benefit us that cover our sins will try to and we will try our best to get out on our own efforts from our errors and ways but let me draw your focus let me just redirect you to see the grander picture of this text that the grace of god preserves any of these tribes any of these people that it continues to preserve the church today that the remnant of the faithful continue to live on today. You might think to yourself, looking at, st- I-, I love when I go to like missions conferences and they're giving you all these stats. This country, this, that country, that, unreached people group, 1040 window, Christianity on the rise here, on the low here, atheism on the rise here, Islam on the rise here, and they're giving you all these stats. You know what does, n- I don't worry a day, I don't worry a single moment in my life. Will there be a church tomorrow? Will there be Christians the next day? Will there be believers 10 years, 20 years, 200, 2,000, 4,000 years from now? Will there be a church? Will there be someone who's truly faithful to the Lord, that continues to read the Bible, that continues to trust in God and read His Word daily and trust their entire life in His hands? I don't worry a moment of my life. You know why? Because it's promised that you will continue to leave a remnant, faithful people of God you sitting in your home or here today man or woman of faith you are that remnant and you don't exist in faith because you conjured it on your own you don't exist in faith because you just all of a sudden decided I'm faithful now we're all unfaithful and so Ephesians teaches us through the Apostle Paul that faith is a gift Given by God. Unwarranted, undeserved, unearned. But it is given. You can do nothing to lose it. You did nothing to gain it. And that is the beauty of the text. These people are devising plans. How do we continue to exist? And God's just sitting on his throne going, I will make it exist. I will preserve it. I love when uh, people are like trembling to give their offering in church, right? I used to be like that. When I go to church and I have to give, I mean, growing up as a Korean Presbyterian, we were always taught to give a tithe, right? By the way, I'm not telling you to give tithe. I'm just saying like, you know, I was always taught as a kid to do that. And I don't mind. I still give my tithe. Like, I think it's a good practice and a good habit to have in my life. Not, not saying it's something you need to do. But I was always trembling. I'm like, oh man, I could buy like, you know, one more of this if I, just, you know, reduce this tithe by this much, right? And I always tremble to give that offering, right? Only later in my life did I realize maybe it's not so much God asking me to give an offering to Him, like a certain percentage or an amount. Maybe it's, God, it's just the act of giving and the act of, of offering something to the Lord is a recognition of the fact that He allows me to even have something to give and a lot of times when we focus on the 10%, we lose focus of what? The 90% He allows you to keep. When that kind of hit me as a thought. Like if you're God of the universe, could you not easily just be like, give me the 90%, you keep 10%, right? And yet here's God going, just give the tithe, use it for His kingdom, use it for the preservation. Well, and Back then in the Old Testament, it was for the Levites. But it's a beautiful thing that He gives to us that we may continue to give, right? And recognize that preservation and provision in our life. Do not fail to see, even in the smallest things in your life, the grace and mercies that uphold you, that continue to preserve you, and allow you to continue to be faithful in Him. We have thus a God who is indeed a Savior a Savior that delivers us from the depth of sin. As we have observed in the entirety of Judges, by sending what? His one and only Son to die on our behalf on that cross. He's the only way, the only truth, and the only way to eternal life. Judges shows us that no mere man can ever, or will ever, or has been our ultimate Savior. That we are in need of a King who is our one true savior and what a savior he is indeed let's pray let's reflect on this grace and this mercy